Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, I am glad that there were so many questions that you all asked this Q&A. Ask me anything episode of the show. The last time I did this, I got incredible feedback on it, and it led to a lot of terrific conversations. So I'm glad to, uh, I'm glad to kick, it, kick it off. I'll, I'll answer as many as I can um, in the time that I have here. I am sitting right outside uh, our writer's office on the stage of Billions uh, above uh, the Axe Capitol set. We shoot in Greenpoint, Brooklyn on three different stages primarily and then on location around the city. And um, getting the podcast recorded in the midst of this is sometimes a little bit of a challenge, but uh, worth it, totally worth it as a character on the show, would say. And I also want to say thanks for spreading the word about the show, the podcast. It is incredibly rewarding when I see how many new listeners we pick up and when I see the chatter online about how a show has um, had an impact or changed something in the way you were thinking about something. And I know that my guests feel the same way. We have some awesome guest-led episodes coming up soon. And so let's get to these questions. Now, I'll say the most common thing that uh, I was asked and that I get asked is about the morning pages. And uh, because I talk about the fact that I have this routine in the mornings, like today, um, I got picked up at 6 a.m. to come to set, which meant I woke up at like a quarter to five. And people um, will often ask sort of how I do the thing, which is that I meditate and then I do morning pages as described by Julia Cameron. And I get all sorts of questions about them, and, and people ask, how do you find the time, uh, or they are sort of skeptical about the time to do them. But also, people um, will ask me how I direct them, or what prompts I use, or um, you know, is, are they different if I'm working on billions or a different show or if I try to generate story ideas. So I just want to talk about what the benefit is. And to do that, I want to go backwards a little bit. I talked about this before, so I'll do this part quickly, but I was a blocked writer. I was someone who couldn't find a way to produce the work that I wanted to produce. And then David Levine gave me The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. The key exercise in that book is something called morning pages. Morning pages are three longhand pages write each morning. And the word write is, I think, what confuses people. What you're really doing is just moving your pen. You're, you're trying to allow, what I'm doing, is I'm trying to just allow myself to write down whatever comes into my head and I don't stop moving the pen. So I'm not thinking and I'm not trying to craft something. What I'm trying, what, what the result is, is I'm getting my subconscious worries out. I'm getting, uh, I'm tipping myself into a creative space, a space where there was nothing on these pages and then these pages are filled. That simple act, sort of like the way some people roll out of bed and stretch or do jumping jacks or do yoga. Somehow waking up, meditating to get myself in a centered place and then dumping whatever thoughts are in my head onto a page. It, it is incredibly freeing for me the rest of the day. It, is a way to just get the dross out of your head and to kind of move 
forward into the day. And so, like this morning, um, I woke up, I made coffee, uh, took two sips and meditated, then finished a cup of coffee, and then I just opened the journal and I date it because I like to date it for myself, and then I just go. Uh, I don't think about, and so some days, I literally might write some days about how I slept the night before, or I wish I'd slept better, or something super mundane. Or suddenly I'm writing and a bunch of thoughts about story show up. But I'm not pressing, I'm not trying to find that. I'm also not judging what I do. Part of what stops many of us from being productive creatively is that we judge ourselves. We hear a critic's voice trying to shut us down. A critic's voice telling us we're not good enough. And so I, when I'm doing morning pages, I'm not thinking about the quality of the senses. I'm not allowing myself the time to say, hey, Brian, you're not as smart as you think you are. In fact, you're dumb. In fact, you're worthless. In fact, the, the, the idea that you think you're someone who should be able to write uh, is absurd. And, and all those stuff, no matter how much commercial success I might have, no matter how many people watch the show or follow me online, I could easily let those thoughts come into my head if uh, I want to. So I put up the morning pages of meditation as a kind of a fence against those things. Those things, those voices kept me from creating for a long time. But now I know if I do morning pages, I've written three pages, I've let the stuff come out, and it is a way to start the day clean and fresh. Um, People also ask, related to this, do I really meditate twice a day for 20 minutes? I meditate every morning for 20 minutes and about five days a week uh, in the afternoon. Lately, I've been on a really good run of it on pretty much every day, but there, there are times the afternoon meditation might, might not happen. But this morning thing is really like priming myself for the day, and so I always do it. Uh, I really encourage people to read Julie Cameron's book, The Artist's Way. Uh, I buy that book for people all the time, and um, if you're somebody who's wondering, hey, am I really an artist, or you are scared to even use the word artist, this is a worthwhile book for you to Okay, the next question. Ah, the great actor Sean Hattesey uh, on Twitter and, and Sean's been the star of many great television shows and movies, um, and uh, he directs television now too. And he uh, said when he saw that I was doing and asked me anything, he said, "How come you didn't cast Sean Hattesey in Knockaround Guys?" And I told him I was going to answer it, and uh, I guess he thought maybe I was going to say something bad about him. But the truth is, Dave and I had a bunch of meetings with Sean. We thought he was awesome. He's a great actor and someone we've always wanted to work with. And we came very close to working with him uh, in the movie Knockout Guys. But it is funny, when you're putting a movie like, uh, an independent movie together, especially back then when you were, when we were, there's this alchemy as you're thinking about all these four, there were these four lead characters. And somehow the grouping just made sense with the four guys that we got. And um, the energy, and, and it's a thing that you want actors to know. I was talking about this on set today with one of the actors in Billions, um, which is if you are an actor, 
and you're facing the kind of rejection that actors face all the time at the beginning of their careers and sometimes deep into their careers. It's really hard not to personalize every single time someone says no, but very often the reason someone says no has nothing to do with uh, what they think of you as an actor. David and I knew Sean was an excellent actor. We loved him in Outside Providence and um, enjoyed spending time with him and had played basketball with him and stuff, thought he was a great guy. The part that was the part that he was in consideration for needed a different shading not in performance there was just somebody else who complemented the other three people in our minds better by just the fact of of what his uh, the prism through which he looked at the world as an actor and so very often that's the case it's like uh, a certain spark when a certain person fits a certain role and um Hattison, man. We hope, uh, as you know, we've always hoped that we could all find a way to do this together. All right, let's get to the next question. Here's um, a question uh, from Twitter, which is like a craft question. Uh, curious about who, what you use to get the vernacular of dialogue down on billions. As a professional investor, um, I marvel at how you uh, make it feel real. I'm not paraphrasing, not, not to say the compliment that he said. So the answer is, um, to do the work of the research, absorb it, and then don't worry about it. So we, and then check it. So I would say we spend a lot of time meeting people in that world, listening to them, observing them, reading about them, watching documentaries about them. Then you as you craft the, the scenes themselves and you set up what the conflicts are, um, and you write the dialogue in the scene, you, you're not worrying about, oh, I, I hope this sounds exactly credible. What you're trying to do is write the scene, let yourself find a flow state, make it fascinating, compelling to yourself and hopefully to the viewer, so that you're not like, oh, I hope this sounds real, or I hope people in the world will think it makes sense. You just have to then kind of write and trust that you've absorbed it, that you've learned it, that you know the way they are. But then you will read the scene over. So then you write, then a day later, look at the scene, try to then go, oh, I can shore this up, I can make this better. Oh, let me research for this little section here. I want to find out that I got the business terms exactly right. And then what Dave and I do is we have consultants read the scripts and just flag for us anything that seems inauthentic. And then we go back and try to get it um, more accurate. But you can go back as far as our first movie rounders. I mean, we just decided what that should sound like. We went and did the research, we read a bunch of books about um, poker players. We were in all these poker clubs. But then at a certain point, you just trust that you found the voice for that particular piece of material. Uh, someone's asking, when will we get the first trailer for season five of Billions? So soon. Really soon. I can't say more than that, but it's not going to be a long time from now. Also, it's not going to be so long from now that the date of season five is going to be announced. Someone asked, why is Billions on Showtime and not HBO? That question comes from someone called The Fishmonger, but with uh, a zero for an up in the word monger on there, um, on Twitter. The answer to this question is that 
David and I really responded to David Nevins, who was the president of Showtime and who is now the chair, who now is a like chairman of Showtime and also the chief content officer for all of CBS. Nevins and a woman named Amy Israel and uh, a guy named Gary Levine were three executives who read the Billion script from Showtime and they were in the room and they all clearly understood it and um, dug it. But we had had a history with Nevins where a couple years before we had sold something to HBO instead of him. And at the time he said to us, uh, I don't think HBO is going to make your show. I will make your show. This was for a prior thing, something where there was a bidding war and all these different people wanted it. And we had other partners on the deal and ended up selling it to HBO. And Nevins was totally right. And we remembered his words and we'd said to ourselves, the next time David Nevins wants something of ours, we're going to find a way to trust him and, and give it to him. And um, luckily enough for us, he loved the Billions pilot script. And as soon as he let us know that, we told him that we had to do it with him at Showtime and shook hands and moved forward and did it together. Uh, on Twitter, Noah, Noah's dad, uh, asks, did you write the Taylor Mason character as gender, gender neutral and then cast Asia K. Taylor, or did you create the character specifically for them? And uh, no, yet the answer to that question is we got so lucky with Asia. And Asia's been on the podcast and we talked about this, but yeah, the character was written as gender non binary before we ever met, saw, or heard of Asia K. Dillon. And uh, then, luckily for us, Asia walked in the room, auditioned, uh, and just obviously nailed it and was the character. And so then it was great because we had this expert on, you know, we had interviewed gender non-binary people. We had again done our work, done our research, but then having Asia here to do the part really takes that question away um, because David and I are a couple of cis, uh, males in our 50s and um, having Asia who is a gender non-binary person playing this character enables us to have a real dialogue uh, going about uh, what seems legit, what doesn't seem legit and how we can continue to deepen and strengthen that aspect of um, the character. Alright, here's a serious question what I'm, I'm eager to talk about. Uh, Ryan Daniel Helion on Twitter asks, how do you manage your ADHD on the Chris McQuarrie episode, which by the way is one of the best episodes of this podcast. You should definitely listen to it if you haven't. On the Chris McQuarrie episode, you talked about using medicine and not using it sometimes. And this person saying they were diagnosed this fall, the meds changed their life for the better. Any advice for somebody incorporating ADHD into their creative or professional life? Having ADHD was torture for me as a kid. It really made it difficult in school. In seventh grade, I got 50 detentions, five out that year. If a class was in any way boring to me, I would get really close to failing it. Um, if I loved the teacher and I loved the material, I would do well, but only because I could then obsess about it in the way that uh, ADHD people do. I wish I had medicine as a kid, I often say, because it would have made my life much simpler, it would have led to much less conflict at home and inside me. 
although I, I don't know if I would have ended up doing what I do. Maybe I would have just um, been able to fit more easily in the box that people would want me to fit in then, and, and maybe I would have just done something conventional with my life instead of what I have done. So at times, um, when I was a grown-up, really, like not until I was close to 40 was I diagnosed officially with ADHD. And I had set up certain things in, in, in my life. You know, um, I've still to this day never ever balanced a checkbook. I've never been the person who's paid my own bills. Uh, Amy, my wife, is incredibly organized and she pays the bills for the family. And she always has, she balances the checkbook. We got married very young and um, all sorts of details like that are things that I just cannot do. I could probably do them if I were medicated, but when I'm not, I can't do them. Um, my partner in all, you know, all my creative endeavors and business, David Levine, my lifelong best friend, when we were kids even, anything that required a certain kind of organization, David would just handle for the two of us. And I, when I, so when I started taking medicine uh, around 39 or 40, it immediately helped me do all sorts of tasks that felt mundane, impossible, um, rote, that most of you can do without it being hard. It might be a pain in the ass, but it's not hard for you. For someone with really uh, significant ADHD, boredom doesn't just feel like boredom feels. Boredom feels like death. Uh, a book that you don't want to read that you're assigned, if, if you have ADHD and it's triggering you, uh, the book feels radioactive. It's not that you don't want to read it or you're being petulant about it. It's that you actually feel like there are rays coming from the book pushing you away from it. When I would have a dry uh, history book to read, there was nothing I could do to force myself to read that textbook when I was in high school. At the same time I couldn't read that, I was reading thousand page novels that I would be gripped by and stay up all night because I would have that hyper focus that is a gift of uh, ADHD. So when I got to be 39, 40 years old, um, oh sorry, other ways that I'd learned to compensate, um, I, I'm lucky that I'm blessed with a really good memory. So I would lose, if people have a head like back then, you'd have to write down calendar dates, and I would lose every notebook, I would lose every date book, but I had a really good memory and I would never forget when I was supposed to meet somebody. I just was able to put that in my brain much more easily than I could ca carry it in a, in a notebook, because I would lose the notebook. I couldn't take notes in class either. I would start, I would daydream, I would get lost, I would do something else, I would doodle. So I never had a note, I would have to learn for class by talking to other students, reading at the last minute. I mean, it was just a disaster. When I started taking the meds, um, it enabled me to work in a more traditional way. And part of what happened is after a couple of years of taking Adderall, when I was off Adderall, I was able to model that behavior. I was able to remember what I would do or how I would compensate. And so now it's rare that I um, go through a period where I take it. Sometimes, a couple times during the making of Billions, there's been a month or two months where I've gone to the doctor, talked it through, gotten medicine, and used it because I've become so, uh, when I get very tired, the ADHD gets worse. And so there have been times that I've said, all right, I have to, for a short period of time, sort of remind myself. But then when I do that and get in uh, a place where I can do the work again, all the work, the writing I can always find a way to do, but all the other stuff attended to it. 
I can then stop the medicine again and sometimes go a year or two years without having to take it again um, and still sort of um, run off of what I learned from when um, I was in it. I like this question. Now, who are you, what were you reading? Brian Donahue asks me, um, what were you reading influenced by as a kid the most growing up as a writer? Who was someone you uh, went back to and read all their stuff? I, I was um, I was just constantly reading from fourth grade on. Uh, I came late to reading. And I, along with the ADHD, I have some very, very minor. My daughter's a, a serious dyslexia. I have some minor version of it. I had to teach myself to read. I couldn't learn the conventional way. But my mom gave me a book a night starting the summer between third and fourth, between fourth and fifth grade. Uh, she gave me a book. The first book was Tales of Fourth Grade Nothing. And she was like, it's, try to read this book. And I could read, but I was not a reader. Uh, I could, and I was a slow reader, and it wasn't fun for me. But somehow, I wish I, I wish I understood what was happening then, so I could try to remember it. But that summer, I read that book. I stayed up all night and read Tales of Fourth Grade Nothing. And then she gave me another book the next day. I read one book every night that summer. And I somehow taught myself to speed read with incredibly high um, retention. And uh, it, it is kind of like a miracle to me. I don't really know how it happened. But um, from there, I'd say the things that I read the most um, were in Stephen King. I read every Stephen King book from junior high school. Uh, they were, I read them over and over again, particularly his first book of short stories. Uh, and those first novels, and uh, Jim Carroll's Basketball Diaries was huge for me in ninth grade, and then I found Salinger and Hemingway and was just off to the races. So it went Judy Bloom, then Stephen King, Jim Carroll, J.D. Salinger, Hemingway. Those were the first ones, and then um, somewhere in there, Lawrence Block, who's uh, a crime writer, and wrote mysteries, crime novels, and I devoured them. I would take the train into Manhattan when I was 14, 15 years old from Long Island just to go to this bookstore called The Mysterious Bookshop. But I would get Stephen King books there, and I would get Larry Block's books, and I would um, read those, and then any book I heard those people reference. But um, I was reading three, four, or five books a week through high school, while doing very badly in school, by the way. So while getting you know C's uh, in school, though I would do well in English classes, but while getting C's in school, I was reading novels constantly, and it turned out to, um, for me anyway, to be a more useful thing to do. I like this question, so I'm going to answer it. It was emailed to me by Anthony. Um, he says in Billions S A E four. Mafid gives up his weed stash, and it includes a pen with a CBD to THC formula that's great for creative thinking. That formula come from a writer, or is it an industry source? Yeah, it came from MedMen, from us going into MedMen and asking the question, and, um, and then reading about it online. There's tons of stuff about what the right formulations are. I mean, you always want to do that work, because you just, I don't know, you find out fascinating stuff, so um, that's where it came from. Anna asks, through email, how do you maintain focus on creative work when horrible things are happening in the world or your personal life? We'll want to separate those things. Horrible things are happening in the world all the time. 
So for me, that, you put up the defenses of, of, as I said, meditation, morning pages, a routine. Hey, for this hour of the day, I'm not going to concentrate on what's going on in the world. I'm going to put it aside. I'm going to do this work for my own personal growth. I'm going to do it because it makes me feel alive. If really horrible things are happening in your personal life, if somebody's sick, uh, if somebody's struggling and you have to help them, look, it is hard. I still do the morning pages because the morning pages will help me process those emotions, will help me get to the other side of them. But don't beat yourself up. If you're helping a family member and they really need it or someone you love and, and that requires you to put the work aside for a little while, that's okay. It's normal. It's, but, the, but I would make sure that I'm not letting that then drift into doing it when the emergency's passed. Once the emergency's passed or once you've gone through the morning or whatever those things are, you got to find your way back to doing the work again. Eva asks, I'm a mother of a three-year-old and like many women, I'm struggling with dividing my time between childcare and my creative pursuits. You often say you were or are an involved father. What did and does that mean for your daily routine? How did you manage? Well, let's be really clear that there's no doubt Amy did the lion's share of the traditional sort of, not just traditional, I mean, the, the functional stuff you have to do on a day-to-day -day basis when your kids are little. I mean, Amy was a novelist working from home and her priority was to manage and take care of the children. I was there in the mornings and there for dinner when I was writing and not shooting, but I would go to the office and I wasn't there and I was doing that. Because um, so, I, I don't, I don't want to make it seem like I was really shouldering half the burden of the, the stuff that um, is, in many ways, the hardest. Uh, I wasn't. But what I mean by being involved is I talk to my kids every single day in a real way. I did then, I do now, as they're 24 and 19. Uh, if you heard Sammy on my podcast a few weeks ago, you, you heard the way that we are with each other, and Anna's been on too, for little moments of it. Um, but yeah, these balance, the balance is hard. I would say this though. Amy wrote th three novels and two movies over the last bunch of years, starting from when the kids were little. And one of the things is we underestimate how much we can accomplish by writing just one page a day or working just one half hour a day. One page a day is 300. Even if you take all the weekends off, it's like 300 pages in a year a half hour, 45 minutes a morning, you can just make incredible progress. And I would say not thinking you have to accomplish the whole thing right away is uh, a crucial key. All right, the real Chris D on Twitter asked me, how has Billions changed you? Could be good or different, or what do you have access to now that you didn't pre-Billions? Well, it has made life easier in many ways. Having I mean, I've talked a bunch about how uh, I was in a really low place right before Billions, career-wise. But the success of the show and getting to make exactly the show Dave and I want to make with this incredible group of people has no doubt made my life better and easier. As a screenwriter, you really don't know where your next gig is coming from, even as a successful screenwriter. But running a television show just as a functional matter, as a practical matter, 
knowing uh, at the beginning of the year that uh, I'm earning a really great living, that I'm building something, that uh, Amy and I are gonna have to move out of our apartment, all that stuff's incredible. And then as far as the access that the show gives us into all different worlds and into the, having the opportunities to meet all sorts of fascinating people, it's a gigantic difference. I was, I mean, we were already working successful filmmakers and screenwriters, meaning we were able to do this for a living at a pretty high level for a long time. But this is an entirely different level and super fun, and there's absolutely zero downside to it. Judd Marcello asks, how do we pick the music for billions? Do we write scenes and episodes for certain songs' feelings? Do we design clothes for each character? We are thinking about the music all the time. We do put music into the scripts. We will indicate a certain song for a certain moment. We do think that there's a new character on the show this year, a character named Mike Prince, played by the great Corey Stoll. And we've had a lot of conversations about what kind of songs that character would have listened to growing up, where he grew up, how he grew up, and what songs would hit off him the right way as you're watching the show. And so, yeah, you're, you're thinking about this, collecting playlists, all that stuff all uh, constantly. And it's one of my favorite parts, for sure, of making the show is, um, along with David, picking the songs. I got a few different parenting questions, and I just want to say, if you ever see me in person, we can have a conversation about it. My kids, we have been insanely lucky First of all, Amy and I, all you want is that your kids are, are healthy, first and foremost, and uh, Anna and Sam are both in great, they're doing great, and I, I am just, you know, I really think part of the job of being a parent is just like kind of let your kids become who they are and, and not have it be about you, and so they're terrific, they're both thriving, and, and um, I'm incredibly proud of them but I, it's very hard to sort of separate out what happened so that the ch your children, as they grow into young adults and adults, become the people that they are beyond consistent love and a ton of conversation and time spent. And I don't want to jinx it. I'm not a superstitious person, but I don't want to jinx any of it. And I also don't want to seem like I know something I don't know. Amy and I knew how to parent our kids, but I have no idea how to parent their kids. Uh, I, I would say I read one book called Nurture Shock by Ashley Merriman and Poe Bronson. That's the only book I ever read about parenting that had useful stuff in it. It applied, certain parts of that applied to our kids. But there's nothing in the world more personal than the relationship you have with your own children. And so, I don't think it transfers. I think it is sort of a miracle anytime any of it works out. And you know, if you ever see me in a bar or in a coffee shop and you sit down, we can chop it up about this. But beyond saying actively love your kids, actively spend time with them, actively try to know who they are and try to make sure your goals for them are goals for them, not for you, I really don't have anything incredibly uh, smart or unique to say. Um, someone asks, me and my bad self asks uh, on Twitter, have you ever had a great story idea ruined by someone telling you it's already been done? No. You have to do the work because it's what makes you feel the most alive. 
that's why I do it. That's why Dave does it. So I, I remember finishing the first draft of Rounders, picking up Variety Magazine and hearing that David Mamet and Al Pacino were together going to do a remake of The Cincinnati Kid or, or a sequel to The Cincinnati Kid. And you know, in our minds, Rounders practically was uh, an original movie, a sequel to the themes and ideas in Cincinnati Kid, a different way to approach um, the world of poker. And we could have just thrown the thing away we definitely thought they were going to not only beat us to screen, but that, that we were nobodies. We had no career. But we didn't let it dis dissuade us, and eventually it was ours that got made, and their movie never got made. And so you have to get... Someone will always tell you something that you can... That if you allow it to, will knock you off of the direction you're headed in. So there are a few ways to handle it. The, I think the most crucial one is don't tell people your idea until you're so deep in it that you won't abandon it if they don't like it. Just resist the urge to talk it out. Resist the urge to tell people who are going to feed your insecurity. And each day you work on it, you'll find you become stronger and more secure and more powerful in the work. And then nothing they say can fuck with you at all. All right, everybody. I hope this was useful. Uh, let me know your feedback at the moment, bk at gmail.com or on Twitter. And we will have guests on the show uh, over the next few weeks. Thanks for listening. Spread the word about the show. And I'll see you next time.